I was going to segue for you. Go ahead. I think you're capable of a segue. <laughs> I'm not so sure because this is ugly. <laughs> I think you wanted to continue on your case there, Matt. Okay. Yes, doc, <laughs> Dr. Horry Blind. <laughs> oh, gosh, Stuart. Yeah, I'm glad we keep you around. You keep it very interesting. <laughs> Welcome back to the Curbsiders, the internal medicine podcast hmm. that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls well, hello, Matt. And, and practice changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Matthew Otto here with my co-host, Dr. Stuart Brigham. You totally ignored me when I interrupted you just now. And, doc, and Dr. Paul Williams. <laughs> I hear you, hey, Stuart. Paul. Hi, Stuart. Hi, hello. Paul. That's the fourth time. <laughs> oh, you're still counting. Okay. Stuart, uh... How about some listener listener feedback? How about some listener feedback? It says, uh, well, we, we, we've got one here. It's from an unidentified listener. I, I assume they want to make it anonymous because it was from, oh, well, I don't know. We'll find out. It says, fantastic interview. I would recommend announcing topics in advance so listeners can submit questions for experts. The hosts can pick the most interesting questions to be answered on air. And I have to admit, Actually, after reading this, I just realized that I posted that on my Facebook feed and forgot to look and see what questions they had for tonight. <laughs> Perfect. That is excellent. I forgot to remind you as well. We're terrible at this. Yeah. But I, I did. I think that's a great suggestion. Um, so we, we're going to try to make an effort uh, probably 24 to 48 hours ahead of time to kind of say which topics we have coming up uh, and, and people can people can leave them. So just go to our Facebook page, the Curbsiders Internal Medicine Podcast. We we have a Facebook page and you can leave your questions there or you can look for Stuart's post, which comes out usually with, you know, <laughs> sporadically within 24 hours of the of recording. And then we'll I cheerfully just, ignore those questions 24 hours later. I, yes. just, I, I just looked at the questions that were posted on Facebook. Were they any of the it questions says, we answered? No, it's ridiculous. It says, I pee a little in my underwear every time you interrupt Matthew. How do I fix this? Next okay. one is, will will there be a lot of interruptions in conversations or will you make sure to keep it flowing? Okay. All right. So nothing useful. <laughs> Not at um, all. I did want to... Brigham School of Humor. Fantastic. Right. I did want I to... Didn't, I didn't write them. Okay. So I did want to, again, remind the audience that we are looking for correspondence for the Curbsiders. And what I mean by that, think Daily Show correspondence. We're looking for motivated learners whether you're a student, resident, NP, PA, uh, attending physician, if you want to get involved with the show, if you want to help write and produce uh, a show, then please reach out to us. We'll we'll need a copy of your CV and write a, a brief like half page on why you want to get involved with the show. If you don't want to do get involved with on-air stuff or the writing and you just want to get involved in the back-end production, we need help with that too. And so we're taking applications. They're going to be due the 15th of September, 2017. And uh, we'll be picking some, what I consider, lucky people to become official curbsiders, correspondents that, that will get to help us make great content for the audience. So with that being said, Paul, did you have a pick of the week? I do. And I'm, I'm going to break routine and actually recommend a podcast rather than a movie this time around. But not to worry, there is nothing medically about it. <laughs> I'm going to 
recommend the Beck Dell cast, uh, which is a podcast uh, featuring two comedians, Caitlin Durante and Jamie Loftus, who basically talk about a movie for about an hour and a half and make a lot of jokes, many of them blue, but then often about how the movie actually treats the portrayal of women. So for those who are not familiar with the Bechdel test, a movie has to have two women in it that both have names who talk to each other about something that's not a ma- that's not a man as the subject. And if it, <laughs> if it just has that, it passes the Bechdel test, and you would be shocked at the number a few number of movies that actually. I mean, it's just most movies don't pass the test. It's absurd. And so think- they sort of use this as a litmus test for how how progressive and thoughtful a movie is in terms of its treatment of women of women. Who who is Bechdel? That that came up with this. It's a. I'm I'm very intrigued by this. I had never heard of this before. So this is actually comes from um, a comic strip. Uh, so the, the comic strip's author is Alison Bechdel. Um, so it's it's in one of her comic strips that she put out in 1985, and it's this sort of throwaway part in this comic strip that she made has now been actually used as part of a, a feminist critique of of movies. Um, and so there's there's obviously some flaws with it, but it's sort of a, a fun basic test to look at exactly how a movie treats its portrayal of women. And I, I feel like I have to address this at this point here. We've we've had a lot of comments from listeners about just like them wanting us to have more women on the show. Of course, this show we're recording the intro for right now. We had a, a, a female guest on. It is definitely something that, you know, not on purpose that we have more male guests than female guests. But we will definitely try to uh, have more female guests. And uh, we're calling for applications for correspondence. So hopefully a lot of them will be women. And certainly we do have a lot of upcoming guests and co-hosts who are going to be women. So so anyway, I'll probably cut out that rant. I don't, I don't think that added much. <laughs> probably going to get myself in trouble. What about you, Matt? What's your pick of the week? My pick of the week is a book. It's one that I'm currently reading, and since I'm moving homes right now, it's it's pretty timely. It's it's by Marie Kondo. It's it's a pretty famous book. It's called the the Magic of Tidying Up. Uh, oh. I probably don't have the exact title there, but it's basically it's it's one of those things that it's so simple, uh, and but it's just genius. Where she basically says she tells you how to systematically go through all your belongings and thin them out to only the things that you really need or that really bring you joy. Basically, you look at something, does it spark joy when you look at it? If it doesn't, you thank it and you throw it away. And uh, that's something that I will be doing as I'm moving in the next uh, week or two here. So thank you, Marie Kondo. <laughs> and this applies to children, pets too, I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah. My my kids better watch out. <laughs> And Stuart, I have to assume you know that we want a pick of the week. Oh, yes, running. Your pick of the week running. is running. Yep, Stuart versus running. running, fantastic. It's a bold choice. Okay, thank you, uh, <laughs> thank you, Stuart. No, 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 no. Okay, no. So, so for real, my pick of the week. I, I, I really think that this 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 movie is hilariously campy. If you have not watched it, if you if you like Godzilla whatsoever, you've got to watch this movie just because of how hilariously campy it is. Um, we briefly mentioned it on a, a a prior podcast from last week or the week before, whenever these podcasts get get uh, get published. It's called Polgarasi. It is a North Korean. Okay, a North Korean uh, Godzilla ripoff. It is hilarious. You've got to watch it. Okay, and where can the audience find that? Like YouTube or something? You, YouTube. It's 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 like it's obviously free because what is North Korea going to sue the United States for money? <laughs> oh, I you you can find a lot of really campy movies on YouTube. That's why that was my guess. But we probably should move on to uh, introducing our guest here. And the the idea for this topic. 
uh, Paul and Stuart and I were talking and agreed that we we didn't know as much as we probably should uh, about treating urinary incontinence. On this episode, we focus on urinary incontinence in women. Our guest is Dr. Molly Hoyblein. She's an assistant clinical professor of medicine at UCSF. She is an internist and primary care specialist in women's health at UCSF Medical Center. In addition to women's health, she has a special interest in chronic disease management and geriatrics. She views her role as a primary care doctor, as a wellness advocate who listens to each patient's health needs and focuses on sharing her knowledge of medicine to help make patients make informed decisions and lifestyle choices. Thus, uh, she is just the right person to talk to about this topic of urinary incontinence, which so much of it is listening to the patient and kind of working with them on lifestyle, as you'll hear about in this talk. I found it really helpful. I hope you will too. So without mm-hmm. further ado, here's our discussion with Dr. Molly Hoyblein. Yeah, we were really struggling to get this one out, but by golly, we did. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Hello, Matthew. Hello, Stuart. This is Hi. Dr. Matthew Watto here with Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. That's me. And Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Hey, guys. Hey. And, and we are happy to have with us tonight Dr. Molly Hoyblein, and I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing that right, from UCSF. Hi, Dr. Hoyblein. Hi. Uh, <laughs> I almost did it. You got it right the first time. Uh, We'll keep that in. Just snorted. We'll keep that in. Yeah. Uh, let's 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 change the topic immediately. Can you, uh, if you had to give our audience a one-liner to describe yourself, what would that sound like? Uh, sure. So I'm a 35-year-old internist who lives in San Francisco uh, with my five-year-old son and my partner. Uh, when I'm not working, I'd rather be doing stuff outside. So I love going hiking and running, and I listen to a lot of medical podcasts while I run. Well, I, I imagine that this is one of the ones you've listened to before, right? <laughs> that is true. <laughs> I would highly recommend it. Well, Excellent. This, this is a question we actually get a lot uh, that, that listeners want to know what other podcasts we listen to, which I don't think we've recommended that many. What's, what's a, a good medical podcast you could recommend to the audience? Are you ready for some competition? Sure, sure. Why not? <laughs> uh, so I have two that I listen to regularly. So one is Audio Digest, which publishes just regular um, CME lectures uh, in podcast format. So it's nice that you don't need to travel or sit still for four hours. Um, and then the other one I listen to a lot is called Pri- Primary Care Wrap from Hippo Education. Um, and they are a much more sort of lighthearted, easy to listen to, a little bit less densely scientific, but has a lot of uh, tips for primary care practice. And I really like that they have short sections that go into things that would never make a 60-minute CME topic, but are really practical for primary care. Those sound good. Well, Audio Digest, of course, I've listened to Audio Digest. Uh, that was that was one that my old job I was able to to get that as part of you know our benefits there, and that's how we heard about you actually talking about this co- topic that we're going to be getting into later of urinary incontinence and uh, the primary care. Uh, the hippo MD. I should point out to the audience. I don't believe those have the same price of free, which the Curbsiders has. But they, I, I think <laughs> there's a fee for that one. So they have some free episodes. So you they can do. get a taste yeah. of it. Yeah. yeah. So, but all of ours are free. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so. And have some content guaranteed. Yeah. 
All right. Just well, a little. I'm sure Paul and Stuart have some questions for you as well. Go ahead, Paul. Sure. I'll I'll ask the one that I always ask. Um, so rather than what book should every physician read, because I feel like that question freaks out most guests, um, just what's a recent book that you've read that you enjoyed and would like to recommend? Um, I recently read one while I was on vacation. So this is a vacation-y type book, but it's called Blue Mind. Um, and it is about how um, our connection with water, so oceans and rivers and things that have water, are, um, is, is very kind of calming and encouraging and puts people in a certain mindset. It's a very positive sort of meditative mindset. Um, and that's written by Wallace Nichols. Hmm. Excellent. Stuart? Yes. What's the best advice that you've ever received as a learner or a teacher? Uh, I think the one that I come back to a lot is a communication strategy that when patients, it also works at home, uh, when someone that you're talking to is is worked up and emotional, um, naming that emotion and saying, I see that you're frustrated. I see that you're upset. I can understand that you feel upset rather than just trying to gloss over it and move past it, um, I think helps people appreciate that they're being seen and kind of lets them step down a little bit. So if someone's, you know, you have that frustrated patient in front of you, they don't need to keep convincing you that they're frustrated. Uh, You sort of have put a a name to their feelings. I'd like to offer a related piece of advice, which uh, I will never forget from my psychiatry rotation as a medical student. The, this was the psychiatrist who was telling us about like the locked psych ward that we were going to be visiting. He's like, if a patient comes at you, put your hands up to show them that you're, you know, non-threatening. And if they start to choke you, turn your head to the, <laughs> he's like, tuck, tuck your chin and turn your head to the side because it'll bring your trachea out of line so they can't crush it. And I was like, oh my gosh. No. Jeez. It's just like advice for a bear attack. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I felt totally at ease after that, going into that box suck ward. I just I not had to use that one, but <laughs> yeah. So anyway, yeah. Tuck your chin, turn your head to the side. It brings your trachea out of reach of someone trying to crush it. So that's very applicable to the topic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we should probably move on to the topic topic at hand here. And as always, start with a case from Cashlack Memorial Hospital. We have a 79-year-old female. She was seeing me in clinic, and this is based on a, a real case that I've seen, like, I feel like a hundred times. It's it's a 79-year-old Same lady. Same one? 79-year-old lady. He had 10 years of urinary urgency, occasionally loses small amounts of urine, sometimes like once in a while she'll have a full bladder emptying episode and drinks a cup of coffee every morning. She doesn't drink much water, maybe like two glasses a day. She she wants to minimize her liquids because she uh, because of her incontinence problem. She's on high blood uh, meds for high blood pressure. She takes hydrochlorothiazide. She's been on oxybutynin for ten years, but she doesn't think it works that well anymore, and she wants to try something else. That's the case we're starting with. But before we jump right to the answer here. I, I just wanted to kind of put it in perspective for the audience. How common is this problem of urinary incontinence? It is really common. So I think, you know, the fact that you're saying that you see this fairly regularly, I, I think it's very common. Um, it's estimated that about half of middle-aged women have some level of urinary incontinence, and then that increases exponentially. So probably about 80% of women at age 80. Jeez. 
that kind of explains why why you failed treating this one patient a hundred times, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> and are, do you know the stats for men? I, I I don't think it's as much, but are are the stats for men as bad or as are the numbers as high? Uh, I honestly have about. 15 male patients working in a women's health center. So I don't know as much about male uh, incontinence, but there is more of an appreciation of overactive bladder as a problem in men. Um, so we used to think more just about BPH as, as a problem for urinary issues with men, which doesn't tend to lead to leakage. Um, but, but overactive bladder can be very common in men as well. Mm-hmm. So being such a prevalent problem, you know, I, I think I stumbled across the same numbers and made me realize what a bad doctor I was for not screening real well. Um, you know, I've seen papers that advocate you just ask every female patient every single time, and then I've heard some that you sort of talk about risk factors first. I, I just wondered what was your approach even for initially screening for urinary incontinence? It depends a little bit on how many other things you need to talk about. Right. So I, it's part of that whole issue of if, if you screen about everything, there's no way to get through a visit. <laughs> right. um, but assuming I'm running on time and, and it's her annual, then I will just ask a question of if she has bothersome leakage of urine, um, because if it really only happens quite rarely and she's not that bothered by it, there's no reason to go into a big talk about you know, the details of it or how to treat it. But um, if she is experiencing you know, psychosocial mm-hmm. bother from that, mm-hmm. then, then we can start getting more into it. And how practical is the use of this this three the three incontinence questions which which I've seen referenced? Yeah, the three IQ is a quick questionnaire that the patient can fill out herself, or you can ask the questions. I think it's a very easy way for people who aren't comfortable with making the diagnosis, just talking to the patient on history. Um, if you sort of need a, a little refresher or reminder like having a sort of a scorecard, it can be a nice way of getting an answer about what type of incontinence she's most likely to have. Um, Mm. and it's, you can also sort of just ask those general questions. And so the, the three IQ questionnaire asks over the last three months, how often, or have you ever leaked even a small amount of urine? And then if yes, um, go on to the next two questions, which are, did you leak urine typically with physical activity, like coughing, sneezing, or did you leak urine when you had a feeling like you needed to go but couldn't get to the bathroom or without a sense of um, urgency and without physical activity? And then they can choose if they've had any of those and which one was the most bothersome. That's something that we'll just link to in the show notes so you can easily find it. But it's with a Google search, it's, it shouldn't be that much of a problem. I, I think that with with incontinence, people are there's a lot of fancy diagnostic tests that are out there, but you're doing the screening questions. What else are you doing in that in that first visit? I, I saw that there's a strong recommendation to get urinalysis just to make sure, I guess, that they don't have a urinary tract infection or like uh, hematuria or something like that that suggests there might be something else going on. Do you do any other testing? It depends a lot on, on the symptoms. If it's someone like your patient and she's had it for 10 years and presumably you've done other screenings on her, you know, that she's been screened for diabetes and she doesn't have a significant proteinuria or other kidney disease or, or some other underlying medical condition that you might be concerned about, you know, congestive heart failure and she's on Lasix. Um, I don't think you necessarily need to, if it's someone you're seeing for the first time, I think it's certainly reasonable to do some basic screening, like make sure she doesn't have diabetes, but, uh, generally for your, your chronic primary care patient, mm-hmm. you wouldn't necessarily need to do that. Well, I think, uh, 
probably the most helpful thing here. This is a bit of an awkward topic to talk about with patients or for them to bring up. So I think hearing about how you bring up the topic or how you start to counsel patients on things like lifestyle modifications that are just really practical things. I think people are more likely to talk about it if they know what to say. What would you tell this lady about lifestyle modifications based on the case that that I told you? Uh, So I would want to hear a little bit more from her about when she's having these symptoms. So kind of getting back to those three IQ questions of, is it occurring more with physical activity or is it occurring more with um, feeling like she needs to go, but isn't quite making it on time. Um, And kind of depending on those, there are slightly different treatment options. Right. Um, Either way though, whether it is urge incontinence, so with, with a strong urge to go, but they don't quite make it on time versus stress, which is more of the, uh, the pelvic floor muscles aren't able to support the bladder in, situations of stress. So high intra-abdominal pressure, like coughing, changing positions, sneezing, either way, whichever one that that turns out to be, or if it's mixed incontinence and components of both, um, pelvic floor muscle strengthening is first line treatment. And so that can be kegels that she does at home. Or if you have a physical therapist in your community who does pelvic physical PT, that can be a really good option for patients who are sort of struggling with doing it on their own. Go ahead. Go ahead, Paul. Um, just I, a lot of the times I like to say for the listeners, but what I mean is, is for me, um, would you mind just sort of going through the, the broader classes of urinary incontinence? So you alluded to stress uh, versus urge versus mix, but you could just talk a little bit about the features of each just to kind of give us a, a little bit of background before we go into to management. Yeah. So those would be the most common types that are sort of walking into your office. Um, there's a few other types you would want to keep in mind, and that would be sort of uh, overflow or neurogenic, which we don't tend to see a lot in a healthy person who's walking in. So if you have a patient with um, a significant multiple sclerosis or advanced Parkinson's and dysautonomia or other kinds of clear known neurologic diseases, you might want to think more about those. And those may be best treated by a specialist. The other big cause that, again, you won't see quite as often, but is relatively common is is functional urinary incontinence. So really the the patient doesn't have so much of an issue with continence, but more of an issue with mobility. And this could be someone in a wheelchair who has difficulty transferring to uh, the toilet and so leaks, or someone with, say, dementia who has trouble with unbuttoning their pants or physically getting to the the toilet on time. And those would have uh, more of a treatment in terms of the caregivers or what kinds of assistive devices can happen at home. Um, In terms of the most common, which would be the urge stress and mixed, um, the urge incontinence is also called overactive bladder. And so there's uh, this concept of overactive bladder dry, which means they don't actually leak urine, but they have a frequent urgency to go, which is a common symptom. And in that one, People are just feeling like they need to pee all the time, not to the point of interstitial cystitis or painful bladder syndrome, but um, just to the point of feeling like it's more than the average person and just that they go to the bathroom a lot, but not necessarily large volume. The urge incontinence, so um, when it actually does cause leakage, women will definitely feel like they need to go. And that's sort of the classic key in the door. You know, they know they need to get home. They know they need to get to the bathroom on the way home. And the minute they put the key in the door, they leak some urine. Uh, they're just not quite able to hold it all the way. And then stress incontinence is the other most common type, which is, again, that difficulty of the pelvic floor muscles supporting the bladder. So um, anything that increases the abdominal pressure, like I mentioned, will put some more pressure on the outside of the bladder and then overwhelm that weak pelvic floor muscle. 
Um, and so some leakage will come out and that typically happens with coughing, sneezing, changing positions or exercise. So Dr. Hoibland, that's an excellent mm -hmm. overview of the different kinds of urinary incontinence. And you started to allude to some of the non-pharmacological treatments. And I, I really have a just a basic question for you. And that is how, how effective are things like the Kegel exercises and pelvic PT for both overactive bladder and uh, urinary incontinence, stress urinary incontinence? I would say if women do them, they're quite effective. Uh, it can sometimes be hard to get women to commit or remember to do them, which I think then maybe shows that they're not actually that bothered by the leakage um, because it does take regular commitment. So what I typically recommend to women is that they'll um, do the pelvic floor muscle contractions or Kegels, ideally kind of a sustained contraction. So they should squeeze their pelvic floor and hold it for up to 10 seconds and then relax and repeat that 10 times. And then try to do 10 uh, sets of 10, two or three times a day. Um, and usually women take about two to three months of doing that regularly to see benefits. But some studies have shown about half of women get significantly better. Just is it, with, it, it, is it worth exercise? Sorry. I'm so, I'm so sorry. Is it worthwhile treating them pharmacologically during that initial two month period? Some people do argue for that. Yeah, it's, I think it's really patient preference. And sometimes having that little support from the medication can give them sort of more ability to make lifestyle changes and feel confident that they have control over their bladder and, um, you know, let them, let them increase, um, uh, work on the, the pelvic floor strengthening and get the benefits from that. Uh, I certainly don't think that's wrong to start the medication right away. I think many women, when they hear about the side effects or look at their copay or like, well, I'd rather just try to work on it by myself without a pill first, but it's certainly an option. Dr. Hoyblind, I when I was reading about this, it, it seems like there's, for stress incontinence, there's the pelvic floor muscle therapy or muscle training. And then there's also a separate bladder training for urge incontinence. And I, I have some handouts that I found uh, that were from Stanford that we can we can link in the show notes for the audience. But can you talk a little bit about the difference between the two of those? So the pelvic floor muscle training is kind of what you were just discussing there, the, the Kegel exercises, but the bladder training, is that something you also coach patients through as well for urge incontinence? Yeah. So I, I think that's a good point that it is primarily for urge incontinence and probably doesn't help with stress incontinence. Um, although uh, women tend to have more stress incontinence symptoms when their bladder is full. So encouraging them to pee more frequently can sometimes help reduce their symptoms. Um, but in terms of the bladder sort of retraining for urge incontinence, there's not as strong data as there is for the um, pelvic floor muscle strengthening. There's very good data that that's effective. Uh, it's kind of lower quality data, but does seem to show some benefit in terms of the, the bladder retraining. And the idea behind that is that if a woman says that she leaks every hour, then having her use the toilet every 45 minutes, have her sort of get control over the sense of dryness, um, and then trying to slowly stretch that time out. So if she makes it a few days and doesn't have any leakage going every 45 minutes, and not that she needs to get up at night, but while she's you know, around during the day, um, stretching that out to an hour or an hour and a half and slowly to two or two and a half hours. And sometimes it is kind of retraining that. Um, Sounds like you're like rewiring the circuit kind of. Yeah. Yeah. 
or sort of giving them that support that they are able to feel confident mm-hmm. that they can hold it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes certainly the medications can be helpful with that as well, that while they're learning to do that and learning to stretch out that time in between, the medications can provide a little extra boost. And one of, one so, of the studies I had seen, uh, just a quick comment, Paul, one of the studies I yeah. had seen was using bladder training or bladder retraining along with medications. And they basically saw that it didn't really decrease incontinence, at least the study I looked at as much as they would have liked, but it did. The patients had like a better sense of control where some of the more kind of quality of life type measures when they were doing those things. It's like a lot of these, a lot of conditions where if you just give the patients a lot of options and give them a sense of control, I just feel like they, at least it helps your relationship with the patient. So certainly after reading about it, something that I will try for, to kind of coach patients through. Paul, I'm sorry, you're... No, no, that was, that's actually a corollary to what I was going to ask about. It's, I think one of the things that in reading up on this that I forget to do is sort of the other behavioral stuff and other supportive stuff, things like managing constipation. Um, you know, I, I think we go right into counseling about kegels and don't do sort of easy things that might actually help with the problem. I wondered if there are any other behavioral or sort of counseling measures that you sort of just give in general to sort of to help with this issue. I'm glad you brought up the constipation one because that can be a big one for some women. So uh, sometimes a difficult problem and a whole other talk in itself. But um, yeah, but but that that can be important to help uh, highlight that relationship for the patient and you know sort of help them get that under control. Uh, other things that seem to be helpful are managing how much fluids they're drinking. So there are those little old ladies that have two cups of water all day, and it seems to be possibly that the concentrated urine is irritating to the bladder and may actually worsen incontinence. So trying to get them to increase their fluids a little bit may actually help, um, which is sometimes hard to convince them of, but, um, but can be helpful. And then on the flip side, there's, you know, those women that walk around with a water bottle all day and drink (laughs) three or four liters. So, uh, trying to sort of retrain them that a liter to a liter and a half is probably sufficient for their hydration needs and may help reduce their incontinence. It's never, I, Dr. Oz tells me I'm supposed to drink 10 gigantic jugs of water a day. And it's just <laughs> yeah. so hard to miss them at anything uh, else. Yeah. Caffeine yeah. tends to be uh, sort of a diuretic and maybe a bladder irritant. So try to limit how much caffeine they're drinking. Um, I, I don't usually try to suggest that women completely stop drinking coffee or any caffeine, but if she's having, you know, six sodas throughout the day, trying to work on that. Um there's some thought that maybe some foods are irritating to the bladder. Uh, not a lot of research behind that, but potentially some women find that helpful. Uh, you can find some lists online of, of foods that tend to be irritating, maybe spicy things or acidic things. Although again, not, not a lot of data behind that one. Um, and then, like I mentioned for the, the stress incontinence, trying to remember to go to the bathroom frequently. Um, so if some women are holding it for four or five hours and they have a very full bladder, it's easier for that pressure to get um, sort of over over the threshold and have some leakage. Dr. Hoyblein, when you were you were mentioning some of the foods, I just wanted to refer the audience. We've talked about this before, but mayoclinic.org has some really great kind of patient-oriented type information, and they have a page on urinary incontinence, and they they list out some of the foods, and you you pretty much hit on all of them. I think I'm not sure if you mentioned alcohol, but everything else you you pretty much mentioned, mm-hmm. and so that's that's a a potential place that you could direct patients. I was trying to, because I like some, like I, 
I like treating geriatric patients. So I like a lot of these non-pharmacologic kind of just like little hacks that people can do for conditions. Absolutely. But I, I just couldn't find a ton of, of evidence like you were saying for drink less fluid, drink more fluid, you know, avoid these certain foods. But anecdotally, I've been telling patients for years now, like, try to drink your fluids between seven and seven, take your diuretics in the morning, you know, at night, <clears throat> just take sips of water instead of like pounding a glass of water because your mouth's dry at night. <laughs> and uh, some sometimes patients come back and tell me, you know, they feel they've had better control. So unfortunately, there's just not, I don't know that studies will be done to test out all these things, which I find very interesting and helpful, at least to have something to tell the patient to try is is helpful. Yeah. And with the medications and the other treatments, there's a strong placebo benefit. So if, you know, cutting out something in their diet that they didn't really like anyway, gets them feeling better, you know, better for them. Yes, definitely. So let's, uh, let's jump back to the case unless, uh, Paul or Stuart, do you, did you guys have anything else in this area before? Yeah, I just have a general question. Uh, it, just kind of generally, how effective are the non-pharmacological treatments versus the pharmacological? And I may have missed this because I too had to go run to the restroom in the middle of this talk. <laughs> <laughs> you uh, totally didn't have to tell everyone that, but I, I love it that you did, Stuart. That's just <laughs> the <topic>, so. <laughs> um, it looks like the, the pelvic floor strengthening, so either uh, Kegels at home or with a formal physical therapy program, probably reduces um, incontinence episodes by about half. So, so quite effective, actually, which is, it's hard to, I guess, compare exactly to pharmacological or surgical treatments because, you know, maybe the patients with the least severe symptoms just got better with um the exercises and didn't go on to try those. And maybe only that some more severe patients went on to surgery or medications, but, um, I would say generally quite effective and certainly there's no harm associated with them. So I would recommend them to all women who, who have symptoms. And so I, I suspect that we're going to go into pharmacological treatment next, but in general, how effective is pharmacological treatment? It's, it's pretty poor, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, your case of the woman who managed to stay on oxybutynin for 10 years is a, a special one. Uh, it's very rare, I would say, that women continue on their medications long term, which sort of just shows you that they're not that effective or have intolerable side effects. Mm. Um, there was a study that actually looked at that, and it, it looked like only about 10 to 40% of women are still taking the medications after about a year, and then uh, only about 10% in about two years across all the drugs for incontinence. So clearly we, we need some better treatments. Um, I think that study was done just on the anticholinergic. So we do have a new class of medications, um, the, the beta agonists, but um, maybe those are better tolerated. Uh, it's I'm not sure that they necessarily are more effective though. Uh, yeah, I have some comments on that for later, but let's let's uh, get yeah. back to the case. So this this seventy nine year old lady, she's been doing uh, she's been doing Kegel exercises. She's she's done the bladder training. She just feels like this is not working. What can we offer her next? And as far as pharmacologic agents go. I think I would say the first thing I would suggest in her situation, I think you mentioned she was on hydrochlorothiazide and I would probably recommend changing that to, to a non-diuretic option. Um, since we have many considerations for blood pressure management, um, I, I think 
you know, it would be reasonable to try something else. I don't think, you know, if a patient clearly had a reason to be on a diuretic, they had heart failure or volume overload, I, I wouldn't necessarily hold it for that situation. But since that could be contributing, um, I would say trying to change that first and see if that makes a difference. And then as far as, let's say she's like, well, doc, I want a medicine. So what yeah. what are you going to give me here? <laughs> uh, so the, the older medications are, are in the same family of the oxybutynin that she's already on. So the anticholinergic medications, um, and they are all generally pretty similar. And the insurance, uh, the drug companies tried to sort of create niches for various ones and argue that they had differences, but it's, it's not that clear that, that any one is particularly better than the others. Um, so I would say some of it depends on what her insurance coverage is. Detrol or tolteridine tends to be covered by a, f- a fair number of plans. I would say that the oxybutynin is, is uh, generic for the short acting. So it tends to be easy to get for the short acting option, but that tends to have more side effects than probably the patch or the long acting pill. And then any of the other ones, it's it's really sort of just choosing which one you're most comfortable with. Um, the solifenacin, the trospium, the fesoteridine, any of those are options. And it it's possible that a patient will respond better to one medication than another or have less side effects compared to another. So even if she failed one anticholinergic like the oxybutynin, it is reasonable to try a second. Okay. So within the same class, you could, you mm-hmm. could switch to another anticholinergic medication, see if they tolerate it better or if they have some better idiosyncratic, better, you know, efficacy with that one. Yeah. Um, and I would, I would say certainly since she is 79, starting with a low, low dose and going up very slowly because the anticholinergics, constipation, dry mouth, uh, sedation all tend to be worse than the elderly. Yeah confusion, tachycardia, like, you know, the mm-hmm. whole, the whole thing. The other things you do not want. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so I, I mentioned that I wanted to talk about Mira Begron, but so yeah. I, Stuart and I were talking earlier. So I had looked this up cause I was like, I, I've heard that, you know, that we talked about clinical significance versus statistical significance very recently. And, and Stuart is holding up something on the Skype cam to make me laugh here, but the clinical significance versus statistical significance. And they were there, the efficacy outcome for the Mira Begron trial that I looked at was a randomized clinical trial. And they were looking at number of micturition episodes in 24 hours and number of incontinence episodes in 24 hours. And it was versus placebo, placebo lowered incontinence and micturition by one episode each per 24 hours and Mirabegron by anywhere from like 1.4 to 1.7, it lowered the the episodes of incontinence or micturition. So when you look at the absolute difference between them, it's like a third to a half of an episode of incontinence less it's than like seven versus six. Yeah, right. Six. And I, I understand that that's a mean. So some patients probably responded better. Some patients drug, drug the mean down, but it, the, the numbers are not like staggering that this no, medicine no. is going to work. Some of the other ways that they do the studies is by uh, weighing pads. And so they'll get like the baseline weight of the pad and then the woman wears it for however long and, you know, 24 hours, but changes it obviously. And they weigh the pad and it, it could be a statistical difference of, you know, seven grams different and that counts as statistics, but right. would the woman notice the difference? Mm-hmm. You know? In terms of quality of life, who could care? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What about the side effects from Mirabegrin? I, I feel like I stopped medication more than started because of hypertension. 
Yeah, it seems to be a very small increase. So I, I think we're all very aware of that concern because it is a beta agonist. Um, but it, it looks like it's it, the increase in heart rate is probably only a couple beats per minute. And the increase in blood pressure is probably only like two millimeters of mercury. So it, generally it's, it is quite safe, but something to look out for. And I guess if you did feel that the significant increase was due to it, I, I would agree yeah. with stopping it. Right. I've, I've got a lot of patients with uncontrolled hypertension who are placed on Mirabegrin. I just think it's a mm-hmm. bad medication to start with if you're already uncontrolled. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess it's the balance of, are you okay with a, a small increase there versus the side effects of an anticholinergic? Neither is one is, not. is great. Yeah. <laughs> Can you hear that? <laughs> I am not. That's right. So and we're, I guess we're talking mostly about medication management for, for urgent incontinence. I had seen, it was almost like a throwaway paragraph in a review that I read about using uh, duloxetine for stress incontinence, where it seems like your, your final recourse is mostly um, surgical. Have you had any experience with that or heard anything about that? Yeah, there is some non-statistically significant difference that shows a trend, <laughs> a trend for benefit. So Fantastic. I, I would, yeah. So slam dunk home run is what I mean. Yeah, so it is <laughs> it is awfully bull, and I would say not that convincing. Um, okay. Similar for vaginal estrogen, there right. seems to be maybe a trend that that has some benefit. Yeah, the other non-medication options for stress incontinence would be a pessary. Um, if you have someone in your area that can fit a pessary for the patient, or if you do that yourself. Or um, there is a product that's just available over the counter by Poise. It's called Impreza. It's kind of like a tampon, but um, the patient inserts it and leaves it in for 12 hours in the vagina, and it just adds a little bit of support, quite similar to a pessary. But it's, I believe, it's cotton or you know synthetic cloth, sort of. It looks similar to a tampon, but wider, so it offers kind of that pressure on the urethra to give a little bit more pressure. Um, a little bit more support to the pelvic floor. And uh, that's something that patients can you know, buy over the counter and use at home if it's helpful for them. So this lady, much as you can imagine from the, the patients we've been talking about, she doesn't have a great response to Mira Begron. Uh, and now she's saying, what else can you offer me? What are some of the next line therapies that are out there? And if we could just kind of briefly summarize them and, and do they work? Would you, do you recommend them for your patients? Uh, for urge incontinence, uh, for patients who are interested in a non-pharmacologic option, there is a, a treatment called posterior tibial nerve stimulation that can be equally effective. I'm sorry, it's called percutaneous tibial nerve stimulation that um, can be equally effective to medications. So again, not a slam dunk doesn't cure everyone, but I have had patients who have been happy with the results. Um, our urogynecology office in our system offers this treatment. So it may be hard to find in some locations, but basically it's an electrical stimulator and that's placed on the posterior tibial nerve at the ankle. And the patient sits with this stimulator on, it delivers a slight electrical current. So it isn't painful. And the patient sits there for half an hour, once a week for 12 weeks, and then about once a month for ongoing maintenance. So it is a big time commitment, um, but can be helpful. So it's once a week for 12 weeks. And then I think mm-hmm. I read after that they can come back monthly or something like that. And if they if they like it to keep getting it. Exactly. Yeah. Is that is that any different than like a TENS unit? Can you just do that at home? Uh, I don't know if it's been studied with a TENS. It is actually a needle into the skin. So the TENS oh, is like a, okay. just a patch. But I, I guess it 
you could give it a try and report your data. <laughs> <laughs> um, they have there has been some studies trying to look at um, uh, acupuncture and electroacupuncture, which sort of has had mixed results. Um, but some people find that helpful. Um, all of these are trying to stimulate the sacral nerves in the in the pelvis, which increases sort of resting tone of the the pelvic floor and maybe reduces detrusor overactivity. I'm sorry, you were saying how the the mechanism of action of this, how this works, it's it's it somehow ties into the sacral plexus or it it, it kind of overrides bladder contraction. Is that well understood how it works? I wouldn't, I don't think it's that well understood, but at least not by me, but, um, but yes, it's, uh, it does seem to, that, that nerve seems to connect back with the sacral plexus. And so I guess causing some ongoing stimulation there just increases the resting tone of the, the pelvic floor. That's, that's about how I've been thinking. I'm like, yeah, it's got to connect up there. You know, somehow that's, that's working. You know, it makes, <laughs> it at least in a pseudoscience kind of way, it makes sense, but I guess it, there's evidence for it. So, um, and what about, uh, surgery for stress urinary incontinence or the bladder slings and pexies? Is that still happening? Is that still something that you recommend for certain patients? Yeah, they're very effective for stress incontinence. So they don't affect urge incontinence. Um, and so in patients with mixed incontinence, they may not get full relief. Um, but I think it it certainly can be a good option for patients with, with stress incontinence. It's very effective. Probably 80 or 90% of, of women are cured at shortly after surgery. Um, the trouble with that is it does tend to sort of weaken again over time. So at 10 years, you know, if there are a number of women are leaking again, and then depending on how old they are and how much it bothers them, there is an option to repeat the treatment, but, um, repeat the surgery. Uh, but I, I would say generally most women that I've had who have undergone the surgery have been happy with the results. Uh, it is major surgery. And so obviously a, a very frail or multimorbid patient is probably not a great candidate for that, but right. in someone who is generally healthy and um, significantly bothered by her symptoms. I think it can be a great option. You know, I, I don't think we really talk about Botox that much. How, how effective is Botox for urinary incontinence? Pretty similar to uh, the medications and the PTNS, uh, the percutaneous tibial nerve stimulation. So they all seem to improve it. it again, there's, there's a big placebo response with all of the treatments. So in most of the studies, about 20 or 30% of placebo patients get better and then about 60 or 70% of treatment patients get better. So there does seem to be, again, a statistical, but sometimes depending on the study, questionable clinical benefit of about 20 or 30 points over placebo um, in, in all the treatments for medication or Botox. And, and so Botox only works for urge incontinence, not stress. Uh, but the idea with that is that if the detrusor is overactive, you can paralyze the muscle in the bladder wall. Um, and so a urologist goes in with a cystoscope and injects a small amount of Botox throughout the, the bladder internally. And then over the next few days, that causes paralysis of parts of the bladder muscle and can be quite effective for some women. Um, they last about six months, sometimes longer. So it does need to be repeated. Um, it has a small risk of 
temporary urinary retention. So some women do have to self-cath afterward, which is obviously not what they wanted to (laughs) sign up for. Yeah. Um, And it can increase the risk of urinary tract infections just from being an invasive procedure and also if there is some retention. Um, That is temporary because eventually the Botox wears off and they go back to their baseline. So it's not a permanent uh, self-cathing, but I would say many women are not that comfortable with the possibility of that risk. Dr. Hoyland, I, I have a, a real brief question about the prevalence about uh, overactive bladder, urinary incontinence. I, I want to just take a step back. For those patients who are status post-hysterectomy, how does that affect the, the prevalence or the incidence of uh, urinary incontinence in any way, shape, or form? Some women actually get worsening symptoms after a hysterectomy, more for stress incontinence. Um, sometimes it can be that uh, everything sort of sags or sinks more after the hysterectomy. And so they have an even weaker pelvic floor and therefore have have more uh, stress incontinence. I would say once in a while, if a woman has a really large fibroid that's pressing on her her bladder and worsening the incontinence, then maybe she'll feel better after the hysterectomy. Um, But generally, I would say it either has no effect or, or makes it slightly worse. I think we're kind of getting to the point where we should wrap up and and get take home points. Unless Paul and Stuart, did we miss no. anything? Yeah, I, I think I I distracted you, and I apologize. One of the I think when you were asking about your analysis for workup, I did wonder if we could just sort of go over if there are any other diagnostic testing you do, or if you just rely on history. So things like the cough test or the Q tip test, or do you is the history uh, enough to sort of tell you what type of incontinence you're dealing with? I think the history is is certainly enough. Um, I. I have seen those tests described. I've never actually seen them performed and I can't imagine. Oh, thank God. Yes. <laughs> I, can't. I mean, can you imagine a patient doing that? Would you want the patient to do that in your office? They wouldn't like want to do Q-tip it in your office. Test. So, yeah. So that's uh, the Q-tip test is um, basically putting a Q-tip in the urethra and watching how much it, it moves sort of and how kind of it, how much it sags. And then they, there's also some the cough test. You basically watch them cough and see if they leak urine while they're coughing. So they have to stand there naked, I guess, and you try to see if they leak, which is... It sounds humiliating for all involved. Not not the best for the, the therapeutic relationship, yeah. Yeah, so I would say generally it's a, it is a clinical diagnosis. And um, we were talking a little bit about this before, but it depends in terms of the testing, it depends a lot on their overall symptoms. So like this patient who has had symptoms for 10 years and she's been your primary care patient this whole time and you have other lab data on her, you probably don't need to do any more testing. If there's something that it's more acute or um, a new patient to you and they haven't been, say, screened for diabetes or kidney disease, it would be reasonable to check those. But I would say generally in your 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 chronic primary care patients, you probably wouldn't need to do any blood work. Hmm. And definitely not recommended to do cystoscopy or ultrasound or urodynamic studies for just basic incontinence. Um, if just, you know, a healthy person walking in with the symptoms, uh, those, that kind of testing really doesn't add anything in terms of management or um, improvement in symptoms. Great. Thank you. And if you had to kind of leave our audience with a couple take-home points, what would those be? I think that that basically urinary incontinence is pretty simple. So um, with asking a few simple questions, you can get a pretty good sense of do they have more of a picture of urge incontinence, so the feeling that they need to go but can't quite make it, or do they have more of a feeling of stress incontinence? So 
they cough or sneeze or move and then they leak. And depending on which direction that pushes you, there are certainly differences in treatment. But the the first, second, third, fourth line treatments are all things that a primary care office can offer, you know, recommend. So they a patient, a healthy woman with incontinence really doesn't need to see a urologist unless you've tried a few of these things and she's really not succeeding or she has other significant you know, spinal cord damage or multiple sclerosis or something. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, the last thing I'll, I'll ask is, do you have anything you'd like to plug or any asks of our audience? Um, so I, and when I've been listening to your, your talks, your previous podcasts, um, I was thinking of many that I would love to hear, but I guess kind of in the, the, I really like the functional medicine talks because, you know, we don't hear too much about that, uh, in regular treating, uh, regular teachings. And yeah. so kind of in that vein, understanding vitamin testing and, you know, I have patients who come to me with these ridiculous panels and the vitamin A is one point off. And what does that really mean? And, you know, is it, what is the value of all that kind of testing? Um, so that'd be one. And then, uh, one other request maybe would be, um, I really liked your talk with Dr. Center about some of his teaching techniques. So I think more about kind of those other roles that physicians fill and how to be better in those. Cause that's another thing we really don't get trained well on is, is you guys were talking a little bit about being a leader the other day and uh, or one of your other podcasts. And I think sort of highlighting experts in those teaching or leadership fields would be great. We're actually going to do an interview with Dr. Centaur next week in real time. I'm not sure when it's going to come out for the audience. And uh, uh-huh. I'll definitely try to hit him up for some more pearl teaching pearls before we get get into the, the main topic with him there. Stuart, you're holding... <laughs> So I have to say to the audience, so we, this, we're probably going to have to stop this practice because, so we, in order to not interrupt the guest and each other, we, we hold something up so that we could say when somebody wants to talk and Stuart is holding up, like he's been smoking a pipe. He's been, he's holding up these weird, like artifacts that he has around his office. It's been, I, I don't know, Dr. Hoyblein, have you been able to see what he's been uh, doing? Not- I, I can actually only see you. Okay. <laughs> That's well, that's, that's no. I, I just wanted to say the functional medicine episodes have been very polarizing. Um, yeah, e- either people them. either people yeah. love them or they hate them. <laughs> I, I I think that there's a, a grain of truth to it, but we've got to be very careful and very skeptical when we approach any of those kind of non traditional um, medical practices. But that's kind of you know neither here nor there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think that those episodes were really those those were really interesting and we might we might be doing another one i think i think the vitamin testing and and talking just about vitamins and supplements in general uh is something that i'd be really interested so thank you for that suggestion to to do another one of those and the teaching stuff we'll just continue to try to put a little bit of that in at least every episode but maybe we'll have another dedicated episode uh in the future here well, Dr. Hoyblein, we'll let you go. And thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to talk to us. This has been great. And I, I think the audience is going to really learn a lot about this topic. And if they're like me, they they probably didn't get that much training on it in med school or residency. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. And I think it's something that's, like I said, very easy for primary care doctors to manage. And it doesn't have to be a subspecialty or gynecology issue necessarily. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, have a good night. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks so much. Have a good night. You too. Bye.
Um, I don't know that we need to do a recap. I mean, it's a, I think it's a pretty straightforward topic. Um, but Paul Stewart, did you guys have anything you wanted to add or anything that struck you from the, from the talk here? This is one thing I, one thing I did want to mention. So I, I looked up the uh, prevalence of urinary incontinence for men, and I, I put it in the in the, uh, the the script for you. So essentially, the the prevalence ranges, and it's it's quite a wide range. It's anywhere from three to eleven percent. With urge incontinence accounts for anywhere from forty to eighty percent. So it's kind of like a you know it's 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 not insignificant, but uh, depending on your patient population, it could be anywhere from you know somewhat uncommon to common. So um, it needs, certainly needs to be on our list of things to think about with our men who are uh, you know BPH going, uh, getting up, uh, urinating multiple times at night because that, that is a form of urinary incontinence, and part of that part of that is likely because of how we are dosing their alpha blockers and something that that maybe in the future we can talk more about BPH and how to appropriately dose alpha blockers for your male patients. Because oftentimes what I see, which is seemingly inappropriate, these alpha blockers are dosed right before bed, and then they get up multiple times at night because you open up the prostate, and then they lay down, and then they get up multiple times at night to go pee, versus instead they should dose it earlier in the evening so that they can open the prostate, empty the bladder, and lay down and have less episodes of of nocturia. Right, right. I've seen people recommend taking that with dinner, uh, right. Because then you have s- uh, several hours of lead time before bed. Right. The, but the problem is that, uh, at least in, in, in my system, that when you put in for any alpha blockers, it's dose QHS. And right. that's not appropriate. So you have yeah. to go, you have to manually change the dosing. Right. Yeah. Well, that's a great public service announcement from Dr. Stuart Brigham. And this has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing that's you right. a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You could, you could find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. You can also sign up to receive our monthly video newsletter summarizing the key tools, tips, and tricks for your practice at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. And just quickly, we will be uh, continuously workshopping this format and I decided today that I, I want to send a PDF copy of the show notes to everyone getting the, the newsletter uh, every Monday. So I feel like that would be something that would be valuable. We've had some requests for PDF copies of the show notes. So for people who sign up for the newsletter, that will be coming to you uh, automatically every Monday. And, yeah, and Matt guarantees a lock of hair in every envelope. <laughs> Paul's hair. I, <laughs> and in, no, right. This is going to get weird. Okay. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your input, so please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes, or send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And finally, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter, at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Watto. And I'm still Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. And good night. And I remain Paul Williams. Good night. Oh, hello, Paul. <laughs>